Hey guys, I was just tidying up a bit. You know. How was Saw Company, or not Saw Company, Spring Break? Yeah, that's a good response. Feel rested, feel ready to take on the rest of the semester? Yeah, enthusiasm, I like it. There was a no over here, but the consensus is good, it's positive. You're gonna finish it strong, I like it. Well, welcome back to Saw Company. It's really awesome to have you guys back. Um, we're just jumping right back into where we left off. We're doing a teaching series through the Bible. We're calling it the story of everything. If you've been coming to Salt this semester, you know we started right at the beginning, and we've just been like blazing through the story of the Bible, right? Um, this is, I think, week five, and we're already through the Old Testament. So we're trucking. We're moving right along. And the reason we're like going so fast, the reason we're doing more of a flyover approach is we, we want you guys to see the unified story of the Bible. Like, it's made of a bunch of different books. It has a lot of different stories. But really, they're all telling the same story. They're telling this one story about God and his creation. It's a single unified narrative. It runs throughout the whole Bible. And we're trying to zoom out a little bit this semester and see it. We're trying to see the big picture. So um, tonight, we're, we're going to bust into the New Testament and I thought it would be a good time to like kind of hit pause and do a little recap, like four-minute flyover, maybe five-minute. I didn't time it. I don't know. But we're going to do a little flyover, a little recap, catch us up. If you haven't been here, this is where we're at. So, in the beginning, right? In the beginning, before the beginning, there was God. And God, he breathed out all of creation, the heavens and the earth. Did somebody laugh? Did somebody think of vape God? I gave a vape illustration, and then I just heard vape God a lot after that. That's all anybody remembers from the sermon. It's fine. But you remember now that he breathed out creation. It's important. So God created by the power of his word. He created the heavens and the earth, and he created all the beings that inhabit his creation. And unique among these beings on earth was man, Adam and Eve. And they were unique because... God made them in his own image, and he gave them authority to rule over earth with him. He shared authority with them, and God lived with them in this perfect garden that he had made until man bought into the lies of a serpent and rebelled against God. And because of this rebellion, God removed them from his presence in the garden, and he declared a curse upon them. And it's a curse that we still live under today, right? But in the midst of the curse was, was this hope, this shimmer of hope, because God said that one day somebody's going to come, an offspring of the woman, and he's going to be the snake crusher, which is a pretty dope name. Could be like a tough guy or like a monster truck, which I thought that was funnier than you did. Think of a monster truck called the snake crusher. It could work like Sunday, 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 snake crusher. Don't laugh at me, Josh. It would, people wouldn't even think about it. It'd be a dope monster truck. Back on track, everybody. Back to the story. So this person is going to come. He's going to crush the head of the snake, defeating evil forever. So under this curse, mankind, they continue to grow, and they spread out among the earth. They spread out over the earth. But, like, it doesn't go super well. It turns out that mankind is pretty bad at being their own god, right? Things go downhill really fast. But along comes this guy, Abraham. He's a seemingly random dude, not really looking for God. But God picks him out, and he starts making promises 
to Abraham, he promises that through Abraham and through his offspring, he's going to bless the whole world. It's a promise to bless all the earth, right? But he's going to do it through the descendants of Abraham, his chosen people, to bless the whole world. And just a couple generations down the line from Abraham, these people enter Egypt and eventually they're enslaved. So they're in slavery for a few hundred years, but God, he comes to the rescue and he frees them. And if you remember, he frees them by the blood of the lamb. And God brings them out of Egypt and he dwells with them in this really unique way. He gives them instructions to make a place for his presence to dwell. And he also gives um, them the law. He gives them these rules. And it was through the law that God, he ruled over his people. And it gave them a way to live that marked them as his followers. And it also established a clear, a clear way for man to interact with God, to have relationship with him. Because even though they had this law, like nobody could live up to it perfectly. Like nobody could follow the law. They were breaking his commands constantly. So God instituted this like ceremonial system of sacrifices that pe- people could make in faith to atone for their sins. But even with the system in place, like God's people just kept turning away from him. There was war and political turmoil. They even split into two like different governing nations, two different kingdoms, both of which were eventually defeated in war by other nations, and many of their people were taken into captivity. And throughout this whole time, God, he was speaking to his people through the prophets. And the prophets would come with their messages from God, and most of the time, people like didn't like the prophets. They weren't excited about the prophets, because the messages that they were bringing were typically not favorable. It was often not good news for the people of Israel. A lot of it was like, uh, hey guys, you're doing really bad stuff. And you need to stop doing really bad stuff. And this bad stuff is going to keep happening to you if you keep doing bad stuff. So cut it out. He's calling people to repentance. But just like there was hope in the midst of that curse that God put on Adam and Eve... God continued to make promises to his people. He said, guys, like the snake crusher is still coming. I'm sending a king who's going to gather you and establish a new kingdom, and he's going to reign forever. And I'm going to give you new hearts, and I'm going to send my spirit to live in you. And once again, you're going to be my people, and I'm going to be your God. And then silence. Lots of it. There's this there's this period, we have no record of any like inspired writings or any prophecy from God for a 400-year period between the last book of the Old Testament and the first book of the New Testament. And so in, it's in this silence that people waited for God to fulfill his promises. And so that kind of catches us up to speed. That brings us to where we are in the story this week. Um, we'll read the sentence. It's going to be up on the screen. It's after years of waiting... King Jesus came, he lived with his people, and he began to establish a new way of life under his rule. It's finally time, guys. We're going to do it. We're going to talk about Jesus at Salt Company. Yeah, I know. It's kind of a new thing for us. It's a novel idea, but we're going to try it out, see how it works, and go from there. So that was a joke. Hopefully that was clear. If you're new, that was a joke. We talk about Jesus a lot here. It's kind of what we do. It's kind of our thing. If you come to Salt Company and you didn't hear us talk about Jesus, then we're, just, we're doing our jobs really bad. We're going to shut it down. 
We're going to put a button at the back. If you don't hear us talk about Jesus, you just smack the button on the way out. Shut it down. It's done. We're going home. Jordan, let's work on that button. Great. So the first thing that we're going to look at in the life of Jesus is that he is, in fact, the coming king that was promised, right? So if you have a Bible or, like, your phone, Bible app on your phone, Google. Also, you can find Bible things on Google. Uh, we're going to look at Luke 4, 16 through 21. So you can flip there, scroll there. You guys can read along with me. It says, And he, he being Jesus, he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll, and he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering the sight of the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And all of the eyes in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All right, so I want you to imagine this scenario, right? And for the sake of this illustration, let's say Jesus hasn't come yet. So no gospel, no New Testament, um, but you have the Old Testament, you know the stories, you know the prophecies, and you've been waiting to hear from God about like when and how he's gonna fulfill these promises. And you're in your hometown. It's Sunday and you're at church. It's a small church. It's a little community church. You've grown up, you've gone there your whole life. You know everybody pretty well. They know you. If you're from a small town, you know what that's like. It's like everybody's way too up in your business. You're way too up in their business. It's a small community. So you're in church with everybody. And let's say during the service, this guy walks up. Uh, let's say his name's Bill. We'll call him Bill. So Bill walks up to the front of the church, right? And he grabs a Bible, and he opens to the book of Isaiah, and he finds a passage about this Messiah, this Christ that's going to come and save people. It's going to establish a kingdom forever. He goes through and he finds this passage in Isaiah about this promised king. And he starts reading it in front of the church. And so, like, Bill's a nice guy, right? He's about, like, 30 years old. He's pretty quiet. Keeps to himself. He's a plumber. He's a plumber in town. You got a broken toilet? You call Bill. He's going to come fix it. His dad was a plumber. He learned from his dad. He's taken over the family business now. And so plumber Bill's up in front, and he reads this passage, and he gets done with it. He sets down the Bible, and then he looks at the church, and he says, that's about me. I am the literal king of the world, and I'm going to save everybody. I'm going to establish a kingdom that's going to live forever, and I'm going to fulfill all of God's promises. Bill said that. Bill. Bill the plumber said that. Like, imagine the responses of the people in the room. Like, imagine the people that have, like, watched him grow up his whole life, even into, like, early adulthood. They'd just be like, Bill has lost his mind, right? Like, the plumber's boy is off his rocker. He thinks he's going to save the world. That's, like, the literal story that's happening here in Luke. It's like almost the exact same thing. Like Jesus is in his hometown church. He's in Nazareth. It was a small town, maybe around like 400 people. 
It was this small little podunk town. He's a carpenter. He learned from his dad. He grew up around these people. He, like, he made their tables. He played with them when they were kids together. Like somebody in the synagogue that day was probably his babysitter at some point. Maybe they changed his little linen diapers. I don't know the details. But what I know is they didn't see him as a king. They knew him as a carpenter. They knew him as Joseph's boy. They weren't ready to receive him as their king, right? Jesus stood up in church and claimed to be God. And do you know what they did? They ran him out of town. And they tried to throw him off a cliff. Literally, just like keep reading. They run him out of town, and they're like, let's throw this guy off the cliff. And then he just kind of walks through the group and leaves. Nothing really happens. But they try to go for it. That's their response to Jesus saying, hey, I am the coming king. Here's the thing, though. Like, did how they respond change anything about who Jesus was? Like, did their response, did Jesus be like, well, it doesn't really seem like they're into the idea of me being their king. I don't, I don't think I'm going to save the world. I don't think I'm going to go through with my plan. No, right? He's still king. He, was, he still went on to save the world. He still went on to establish his kingdom. He didn't need their approval or their validation because his authority didn't come from them, right? Guys, Jesus is king whether or not you recognize his authority. Like, his authority is eternal, and it's unchanging, and it's completely unaffected by what you think of him. Now, I'm, I'm not a particularly political person. I don't really enjoy uh, wading into the murky waters of political commentary. Um, but I think this is a good illustration. So just know right now at the offset, I'm not trying to take a stance on anything. I don't want you to come and talk to me about politics afterwards. I'm, I'm just going to ignore you. I really don't want to talk to you about it. Um, so that's my disclaimer. I just think it's a good illustration for this point. So here we go. Have you, have you ever been part of a conversation and uh, a president gets brought up, president gets referenced, and somebody like almost reflexively interjects like, not my president. Mm-mm. Not my president. No way. Again, I'm not trying to make a stance here. I just think it's kind of funny because the reality of the situation is like, yeah, but he is your president, though. Right? Like, just because you say he's not your president doesn't mean he's not your president. Like, as an American citizen, whoever gets elected president for that term is your president. That's just the way it works. You saying he's not doesn't change anything. If you're an American citizen, then you're under his authority. And guys, if you're a part of God's creation, if you're a citizen of this world that he's created, then Jesus is your king. You can say he's not. You can ignore him if you want. You can pretend he's not there. You can even live functionally like you're your own king. And frighteningly enough, like he, he might let you do that. How have you responded to Jesus' claim to be your king? How have you reacted to that? Have you received it? Have you denied it? Or maybe you haven't really given it much thought. Maybe you haven't considered it. Maybe you're undecided. You're like mulling it over, trying to figure out what you're going to do. And if you are, like, I would, I would beg you to consider carefully. Because at the end of this life, you're going to come face to face with the reality of who Jesus is. And how you respond to that reality right now 
in this life is going to determine whether you spend eternity experiencing a fullness of joy in God's presence or you spend it experiencing his wrath being poured out on you as a just response for your sin. Philippians 2, 9 through 11 says this of Jesus. It says, Therefore, God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The kingship of Jesus is an unchangeable and an unavoidable reality. Please consider strongly. Give it time. Give it thought. Consider how you respond to his claim to kingship. All right, let's keep moving. So Jesus comes. He asserts himself to be the awaited king. And so now that he does, like, what, what is this new way of life that he's establishing? What's life like under his rule? Practically speaking, what are we going to do? What's it look like? Well, not long after Jesus gets run out of his hometown, he gets run out of Nazareth, um, he sits down with some of the people that are following and he, he, he tells them all about it. He tells them all about his kingdom life. And we see that recorded in Matthew 5 through 7. That's where we're going to be spending um, the rest of our time. So if you guys want to flip there, um, this passage, this uh, chunk of chapters in Matthew is referred to as the Sermon on the Mount because Jesus was kind of on a little mountain when he did it. And it happens pretty on and Jesus is uh, pretty... Words are hard, guys. Words are so hard. It happens pretty early on in Jesus' ministry. He hasn't even like called all 12 of his disciples yet. So it's early on, but there's a buzz about him. Like People are starting to hear about him. Crowds are kind of starting to gather. And in the midst of that, he decides to kind of go up on this mountain and sit down with some of his closer followers and talk about what it's like to live in his kingdom. And in a nutshell, this is what he says. He says that life in his kingdom, is God's kids living in moral perfection. Life under Jesus' rule is God's kids living in moral perfection. So let's talk about first, let's talk about his call to moral perfection. And let's start by reading Matthew 5, verses 17 through 20. And Jesus says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. All right, so Jesus, he, he leads off with this clarifying statement in verse 17. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So this is all about continuity, right? The law that Jesus re is referring to here is the Torah. It's the first five books of the Bible. Some people call it the, the books of Moses. Um, it's more than just like the rules that God gave his people to live by. It includes that, but it also includes like the stories, the history and the promises that God made to his people in those first five books. And the prophets 
as you may have guessed, is the writings of the prophets, right? And so when you see the phrase the law and the prophets pop up in the New Testament, just think Old Testament. You can just kind of replace law and the prophets with Old Testament. So this is what Jesus is saying. This is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I I didn't come to do away with the Old Testament. Like, I'm not going to scrap it in order to start something new. I'm going to fulfill it. I'm going to prove that it's all pointing to me. And as for all, like, the commands and the laws that God gave throughout it, I'm going to follow them perfectly. I'm going to satisfy the law entirely. But Jesus doesn't stop there. Like, that's, that's not kingdom life. That's not Jesus' kingdom life. He actually, he raises the bar from the law. He's going to up the ante a little bit. Let's look at verses 21 through 24. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, Everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the fire of hell. So if you are offering your gift at the altar... And there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come. Offer your gift. In other words, Jesus is saying, just following the law is not good enough in my kingdom. That's not what it's about. That's not going to cut it. Like we could follow all the rules and we could make all the correct sacrifices, but if our hearts are messed up, those things aren't going to do us any good. If you're, hard, if you're harboring like bitterness in your heart towards someone, or you've, you've hurt someone and you haven't asked for forgiveness, you haven't sought reconciliation with that person, restoration in your relationship, then you're going to be held to the same judgment as if you had murdered that person. Y'all, that's a high bar, right? That's really stepping it up from the law. So fun fact about me, full of fun facts, more fun to me than anybody else, probably. Um, I was almost an engineer once. It's kind of true, at least. I did three semesters of mechanical engineering uh, at Iowa State, which, uh, you know, was great. I switched my major four times after that, so I was almost a lot of things. And now I'm not using uh, any of those things that I studied, so it's fine. Um, but, But I did three semesters of mechanical engineering, and in that time, I took a lot of classes where you're, like, you're just constantly doing math, right? You're doing math all day long. And in some of those classes, like the professors or TAs or whoever's grading our like, tests and papers, um, they, would, they would check our work. You ever taken a math class like that where they check your work? Dude, it's so annoying. I hated it so much. Because so here's what's happened. If you haven't taken a class where they check your work, this is, this is what goes down. You have to write out, like everything. You had to write out every step, every process, or every calculation that you used to get to the answer. And if you had the right answer, but you arrived at your answer, like by the wrong means, by the wrong process, or the wrong line of thinking, then your right answer didn't count. Like you didn't get credit for giving the right answer for the wrong reasons. It was a huge bummer. But they, they wanted to know that you were thinking correctly about how to arrive at that answer, right? Saul Company, Jesus is checking your math. His kingdom isn't about doing the right thing. He's not concerned 
about the end result, the actions that we are or aren't taking. That's not his primary concern. He wants the motivations of our heart to be pure. The standard that he's calling us to is, is not only to do the right things, but to do them for the right reasons. He wants even the thoughts that fill your mind to be righteous and holy. Here's a couple frightening verses. Let's read them together. Verses 27 and 28. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Guys, how you doing on that? How's that going? Ladies, you're not immune to it. What's that like in your life? How's your thought life? Like the world, the world standard is this. The world says like, you can look, but you can't touch. And even then, like that's a pretty high standard of sexual morality in our culture. Like if you had a conversation with someone, like an average secular American, and you said like, yeah, like I watch porn, and I mean, I've, I've maybe will fantasize about a girl that I see in class or walking down the street, but like I don't hook up with a bunch of random people. Me and my girlfriend, like we haven't even had sex yet. And that person's response would probably be like, wow, like you're really keeping your nose clean. That's impressive. It's pretty good. But that's not enough for Jesus. Like he wants to be the king of our every thought. He wants all of you. The standard in his kingdom isn't just outward moral perfection. It's an inward moral perfection that starts in the heart and it transforms the mind and it flows out into our actions. That's his standard. That's what his kingdom is like. So where does that leave us? Like, how are we going to survive in Jesus' kingdom when the judgment is that severe and the bar is that high? Like, just today, I've already fallen short. I don't, I don't even know how many times. Like, I blew it. The day was over before it started, right? So what hope do I have? None, right? On my own, I, I got nothing. I'm not going to make it in Jesus' kingdom on my own. But there's good news. It's good. We can't do it. Like moral perfection is daily, from day to day and like moment to moment. Moral perfection is outside my reach. But Jesus did it. He pulled it off. He fulfilled every requirement of the law perfectly. He lived his whole life both inwardly and outwardly with absolute moral perfection. And not only that, but now he openly offers that moral perfection to us. He's like, oh, like my perfect record? Like you can have it. It's yours. Take it. And not only that, but he removes the guilt and punishment associated with our record of sin and our failures by taking it upon himself. Like we've done wrong. There's a debt that needs to be paid. But Jesus says, I got this. I can shoulder that burden for you. I got it. It's the most unfair trade, right? It's the most unfair trade in the history of the universe. And all we have to do is trust that he can do it. Like all we have to do is put our faith in his ability to save us from our guilt and our life of sin. And then we get like all wrapped up 
in his perfection and we can live in his kingdom with him. He lived the perfect life that we couldn't live and then he became sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Us, Salt Company, us in this room, this group of broken people, we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. The life of moral perfection in Jesus' kingdom is possible for us because he gives it to us. That's good news, amen? Yeah. I need, I need a bigger response than that. That's good news, amen? Yeah. Amen. Yeah, that's some good news. There's more good news. keeps getting better. And I'm going to try to keep it short and sweet. Um, I don't want to drag it out too much because I tend to do those things. So here we go. We defined life in Jesus' kingdom as God's kids living in moral perfection, right? That was our functioning definition. Here's the problem with that. How do we know if we're God's kids? Like, you don't, you don't get to pick your family. You don't choose your parents, your brothers and your sisters. Those things are chosen for you. You can, like, try to insert yourself into somebody else's family. You can go for it. You can be like, oh, I got a nice house. I got some jet skis. Seems pretty cool. I'm going to go be their kid, you know? Like, you could, do, you could try it. You could show up to their house. You could sleep there. You could eat their food. But that doesn't change anything about whose kid you are, right? That's not really your decision to make. But throughout this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking to his followers as if God is already their father, like it's a done deal. Here's just a few examples. I'm just going to fly through them real quick. 5.16 said, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. 5.48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Chapter 6, 8 and 9, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. In verse 11 of chapter 7, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven Give good things to those who ask him. Over and over, Jesus says, like, your father, your father, our father, my father. Like, he's referring to the same guy as both our father and his father. It's like he's saying to his followers, like, hey, we have the same dad. Like, I'm your brother. We're a family. So what did we miss? Like, when did that happen, right? Like, what's going on here? The answer is, it's in Ephesians 1, and it'll be up on the screens. Um, you guys can follow along up there. In verse 3, it says, this is so good, guys. Mm, this is so good. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. God picked you. He chose you to be his son or his daughter through Jesus Christ. And just as you're handed the moral perfection of Jesus when you put your faith in him, you're also brought into his sonship with him. 
You're God's kid now. Like he adopted you, he picked you, he chose you. And guess what? Guys, he had your adoption papers drawn up and ready to go before Genesis 1-1, right? How cool is that? That's the, that's the coolest thing I've ever heard of in the world. Before light and darkness existed, God was like, I picked that one. I'm choosing that one. I got it. He's had a plan to pull you into his family through Christ before he started creating the world. Jesus isn't God's plan B to rescue us from the mistake that Adam and Eve made. Jesus is God's plan A to bring us into his family so that we should be called the children of God. And that's what we are. So this new way of life that Jesus came to establish, kingdom life under Jesus' rule, it's like this. It's like you're a kid, right? And you're playing baseball. You're at your little league game. It's like a nice summer day, mid-70s. It's a great day. And you're chilling in the dugout. You got like the chain link fence behind you. And right behind you, like God is your dad. And he's sitting in the stands and he's watching you play baseball. And you are just crushing it, right? You're batting a thousand. No strikes, no fouls, like just home runs all day long. Every pitch sent your way, it gets launched out of the park. And it's because when it's your turn to hit, Jesus steps up to the plate for you. And he just cranks it. And then he lets you run the bases. And as you're doing it, you're like tripping and falling all over yourself. Like you're hardly making it around the bases. But it doesn't matter because the ball's already cleared the fences. Like it's done. It's over. And you're like stumbling over third base, rounding the corner. And your team's like rushing home plate, ready to celebrate with you. And your dad is so proud. He's so proud of you. And it's, it's not because you did so well in the game, right? You sucked. <laughs> you contributed nothing to that victory. You didn't do squat. But he's proud of you because you're his kid. And you trusted Jesus to win the game for you. And after the game, you get to go home with your dad. And maybe you'll stop at Pizza Hut along the way. I don't know what God has planned, but it's going to be really good. But that's the kingdom that Jesus came to this earth to establish. And that's where we're at in our story. So this is how we're going to end tonight. I'm going to read the story so far. I'm going to pray for us. And then we're just going to worship Jesus together. We're going to thank him for making a way for us to live with him in his kingdom, for inviting us into his perfection, and for pulling us into the family of God. So here's the story so far. In the beginning, God created all things and lived with human beings on his good earth. But humankind betrayed him, so humans were cursed and removed from his presence. While God promised to destroy the curse, he also promised to bless the earth forever through his redeemed people. However, God's people were enslaved in Egypt until they were set free by the blood of the Lamb. God lived among his people and ruled over them through his law, as he led them back home. Now God's people betrayed him again and never came home, but God promised that his coming king would live with them forever and give them new hearts. And after years of waiting, King Jesus came, lived with his people, 
and began to establish a new way of life under his rule. Let's pray. Yeah, Jesus, thank you for making a way for us. Thank you for doing something we couldn't do, for living a life that we couldn't live. Father, thank you for adopting us, for choosing us. Before you made any moves, before you created anything, you decided that we were going to be brought into your family. And we're so undeserving. God, we have nothing to offer. We have nothing to bring to the table. And yet you chose us, and yet you love us, and you pursue us in the midst of our sin and our selfishness. God, thank you for that. Thank you for being faithful when we're so unfaithful and for being proud of us because we're your kid. Not because we do well, but because when you look at us, you see the perfect life of Jesus. You see us fulfilling the law perfectly. You see us doing everything right because Jesus did everything right. And we just get to be pulled into that. So thank you for that, God. Would you just breathe life into our hearts as we consider that truth? Would you get us excited to be your kids? And would you give us thankful hearts um, as we give thanks? Would we um, just so love being in the presence of our dad? We pray these things in your name. Amen.